Hello, everybody, and welcome to Mrs. G's Storytime. We are reading Stones of Fire by Isabel Kuhn with permission of OMF International, and we are on Chapter 7, Made Only of Desert Dust. Do you know that lovely fact about the opal? That in the first place, it is made only from desert dust, sand, silica, and owes its beauty and preciousness to a defect. It is a stone with a broken heart. It is full of minute fissures, which admit air, and the air reflects the light. Hence, its lovely hues, and that sweet lamp of fire that ever burns at its heart, for the breath of the Lord God is in it. You are only conscious of the cracks in the desert dust, but so he makes his precious opal. We must be broken in ourselves before we can give back the lovely hues of his light, and the lamp in the temple can burn in us and never go out. Elise Hopkins Mary was ill. The first intimation of it had come during that Christmas when the missionary lady doctor had visited them. Mary, who as usual did the cooking for the Christmas crowd out of a cold, windy hillside, caught a head cold in the consequence. But others were more seriously ill in their household. Both Lucing Pa and Timothy had to call in for the doctor's help. So she said nothing about herself. But one day as she and her mother-in-law were baiting out the corn, a sharp pain like a knife cut shot through her jaw and head, very severe for a few moments, and then it was gone. Occasionally that sharp pain returned, never for long. Then in March she suddenly had a hemorrhage from the nose and Mama was called in. Mystified, she tried different medications and prescribed rest. It was difficult to get rest, for Paul was sick and cried at night, often making her get up and carry him back and forth, even though being four years old he was heavy. Also, it was planting time and she must help. Thirdly, that spring, the long-threatened political upset descended upon them. Rumors came that the communists had arrived at Pashan, where Ma Pa had gone en route to help the southern Lesu tribe. Then suddenly, a villager who had been to Lucheng to carry corn returned with the news that the Reds, about 30 of them, were already in Lucheng. Actually, these were not Reds, but brigands masquerading under that name. The communists have since repudiated them, but all during the danger, the officials in the canyon thought there might be a connection at least. They made an attack upon the six treasury towns, took the lairds there by surprise, captured some of their women folk, and the lairds themselves only escaped with what they were on their backs. These invaders confiscated everything, thousands of dollars. And last night, the rumor continued, they had arrived at Luchang, publicly said that they were coming to Olive's. Everyone guessed it must be to get Mama and Brother Three. No one else was thought worthy looting except perhaps the headman, Yi Hu Pa, who had some guns. Lu Sing came home flushed with excitement. Mary, you and Paul must run and hide in the cave. They won't touch an old woman like Mama, so she may stay. Asaf is packing up to take his wife, and Andrew is getting Rhoda out of the way. Timothy and I will help you carry your rice pots and whatever you need. I will stay home, or rather I will return home. I'm going down to the road to see whether these rumors are true or false. I will go towards Luchang, but I would be back on Monday night. Is Mama hiding too? No, she has packed up some of her things and had them hidden. Medicines, kerosene, and such things. Maybe we're going to finish the Bible school which has begun, but I wonder. That year, rainy season Bible school was held from April to June, and this occurred in the middle of the session at that weekend. When students had scattered to far villages to preach, they were due back on Monday night. With such danger abroad, would they dare return? 
By nighttime, Mary and Paul, along with many of the other young women of the village, were safely hidden in the cave, high up on a rocky cliff, of whose existence no one else knew but the villagers. They stayed a whole week, Timothy or someone else bringing them fresh supplies of food as needed. Every day it poured with rain. The streams in between Luchang and Olives rose and flooded until they were uncrossable, which was the only thing that saved them from the visit by the brigands. These had divided into two bands, one on the east bank and one on the west. The group on the east had approached young Laird Duan at place of action. They demanded guns, clothing, shoes, and besides much pork and liquor. He had acted very submissively, killed a pig or two, poured out a keg after keg of native whiskey, made no demur when they demanded more leather shoes. Married the previous year, he had many new garments, and to his secret chagrin, his own best men was a part of this group, and of course knew just what the laird possessed, and even to his seventeen pairs of leather shoes. They were rather surprised at his meekness, for he had a reputation for courage, but concluded that their unconquerable character which had quelled him. To tell the truth, Laird Duane himself did not know whether these men were communists or robbers, but when they began to demand so many things, he quietly concluded that they were the latter and made his plans accordingly. For a long time now, he had had a Captain Tazing, hired from the soldiery disbanded at the end of the Japanese war as his personal retainer. Unknown to anyone but Tazing, he had hand grenades, also left over from the war, hidden behind his castle. When the brigands first arrived and asked for his guns, he had given them a couple, but only Tazing knew he had better ones concealed in another place. All afternoon, Laird Duan acted quite humbly but chagrined. When evening fell, most of his guests, who were well under the influence of his potent liquor, went to bed to sleep heavily. After midnight, when snores and deep breathing proclaimed that all were unconscious to this world, the laird tiptoed around his yamen, carefully unlocking every door but the front, main front one. Already secret messages had gone to all the village within three hours of walk of his yamen. With that order, that every lesu who owned or could procure a gun should arrive silently at dawn the next day, surround his yamen, and shoot and capture any trying to escape by the front door. He knew the lesu would not dare to disobey him. This laird, called Grandpa by the lesu as a term of respect, was only twenty-three years old. At dawn, therefore, having procured the hand grenades from the mountainside, Captain Tsing and the laird climbed up on the roof of the yamen to take an advantageous point and threw the hand grenades on the sleeping guest. The carnage and the pandemonium that ensued can be imagined. Remember, there is no electric light but to turn on and see what the disturbance is about. Lacey visited Lucy Singpa's fire, who told this story, described the yamen as a lake of blood by the time faint light, daylight came to reveal the sad scene. About 13 were dead or dying. Six who had tried to flee through the front door were caught by the lesu waiting outside and tied up. The best man crept on his knees to the front threshold, presented his gun butt foremost through the opening, and cried out to the laird outside. He used the lesu covenant, the name of Wacho, for he was a covenant chum of Duan's, and this, that name temporarily secured his life. They said that when he was allowed to come out of that death trap, his face was ashen and he shook all over, sobbing and crying, as he flung his arms around the laird. One other one was caught whose foot was so badly shattered that he cried for death and swallowed opium. What will Grandpa do now? questioned Mary. He would not dare sleep in the yamen after all these people died there. 
That would be Shah to him. Shah is laying oneself open to the demon's revenge and can only be overcome by animal sacrifice and incantations. He says he's going to move over to Allah, said the visitor, and the runner who brought this news prepared us. Yahweh Pa must make arrangements to receive the Laird's household. His women arrive tomorrow. They are sleeping in the beheaded tribesmen's village tonight. In fact, they had already taken refuge there before these brigands got to the place of action. Ay, ya, groaned Lusing Ma. If the Laird moves over here, then we'll be bothered greatly. Messages have to be taken for him day and night. All his poor relatives have to be fed, and they'll go out at night and fetch corn and beans from our fields. Ah, yeah, that's bad news for us. Why does he come to Olives? Because he's afraid of revenge. If these men are communists, then the Reds in the Mekong Valley will come over the hill and take revenge. Grandpa wants a Salween River between him and them. All rope bridges over the Salween have to be cut except the one at the bottom of this village. The order has gone forth already. Then no one can get here unless they cross our bridge. The river is already so high the rafts would perish. Rains are very early this year, you know. Mary and Paul were home again now, for the brigands had suddenly left. The Laird's victory had given a sense of security. While the Chinese magistrate had skipped over the mountains in the Burma and hired a group of army men who had good rivals, and with these he was attempting to encircle the brigands. This made them retire to the eastern bank where they cut the Luching Rope Bridge. Rope bridges cannot be made in the flood season. Once cut, the crossing is hopeless until autumn, when the river goes down low enough for a raft to venture over, carrying the end of the new bridge to be tied to that bank. So the next day it happened, just as the visitor had said. A long line of refugees were seen coming from the Olives Rope Bridge. Early that morning, the town crier had gone calling orders. A man or woman from each house to the rope bridge immediately. We must help carry the women and the things of the Laird's household up from the river. Low murmurs of resentment were his only response, but no one dare refuse. Lucing was studying in the Bible school still, for all the students had returned. Mary was not strong enough to carry such heavy loads now, and Lucing Pa and the mother were both over 60 years, too old to carry, so that left Timothy as the only one to represent his family. If Timothy carried for the laird, Mary must watch the cows, for oxen, which are indispensable to plowing those steep and rocky hillsides, must be carefully herded or they will fall over the cliffs. As Mary opened the door under loosing Ma's shanty for the cows to come in, she could see the path up from the rope bridge to the village. The east side of Olive rises in an abrupt ridge of rock, which jets out perpendicularly, making the village into an oval bowl but at its south end falls away suddenly, leaving a passage between the ridge and the mountain proper. Through this defile, with its background of mountainside towering up across the river, slips a trail from the village down to the river bank. Already a long single file was laboriously ascending. The Laird's wife, her mother, her mother's other children, the Laird's brothers and sisters, which numbered five to six, and various cousins, slaves, servants, soldiers were climbing up the village. Two or three rode horses, the laird's wife and mother-in-law must ride up mountain chair, which is equivalent to a sedan chair carried on men's shoulders, and the villagers of Olives must leave their field work and do the carrying free of charge. They were serfs. Mary could make out Abigail and Savannah, and some of the other girls bent over with heavy loads upon their backs, laboring up the slope below. They looked like bent pens and horses, like pinheads crawling up between the great craggy rocks. Mary sighed, but at least she was glad the Laird's party was going to stay at the north end of the dell. 
that was almost a mile away from the chapel. It was better than next door or in their midst. That night when she returned home, Timothy was talking about it. This is only the beginning, he growled. Grandpa himself comes tomorrow and all his soldiers, and they have already begun to bar our tables. We can eat on the floor, of course. They must have tables. Yahweh Pa figured there would be 70 of them when they were all here. 70 people to find food for twice a day. But our village does not have to supply all that, put in old Lusing Pa. Runners have already gone to inform the villages around how much each has to bring of beaten out rice and beans. Yes, said Timothy, but and who are the runners? We are, running on his errands day and night now, carrying our own food. And it's farming time, moaned Lusing Ma. Mary is sick, and there's only Timothy. If he sends Timothy, what will we do? When RSVC is over, I will go sometime, said Lucing, comfortably. And this conversation was being repeated in every hut in the village that night. Entertaining Grandpa is a well-known affair in the Le Soulin, and it's not enjoyed either. The next morning at daylight, the town crier was again prodding up the mountain to his post in the middle of the village beside Mama's house. And once more, his voice rang out harshly. One man from every house is to go to the rope bridge, the laird and his men to cross today. And once more, a trickle of grumbling, sleepy men and women carrying their yokes slung over their shoulders started down the trail. That afternoon, as RSBC was dismissed, Mama spied the long, single file climbing up to the dell. The laird and several men were riding bareback. They had not taken time to find their harness. Lee Singh, standing beside Mama, said in disgust, Now our village becomes the focal attention from the Reds or Brigands or whatever they are. If they don't make him pay for that midnight massacre, I'm mistaken. Jonah, his load delivered and so free to go home, passed them on his way up the mountain. He brought over those six men he captured in his yamanet last night. Says he's going to kill them tomorrow. Oh, no, cried Mama. Why does he have to do that? Why didn't he do it before crossing the river? Why do we have to witness such a thing? Well, maybe it was only talk, said Jonah quickly, seeing that Mama was very upset. Is Dawa Young his best man among them, asked Mama. No, he's dead. The Laird told him that if he would behave himself and not try to escape, he would spare him and even give him $50 to get home. But a group of armed men had arrived at Beha over the mountain from the Yaman. They came from Mekong, and Dawa Young ran away at dawn to join them and led them against the Laird, I suppose. Anyway, he was missed. The Laird sent two soldiers after to shoot him on sight, which they did on the mountain pass. Oh, I do hope there was going to be no killing here, moaned Mama. Maybe it was just talk, Mama. Don't worry, said Jonah kindly, passing on to his mud house at the top of the village. But Mama could not get rid of the horror of it. She went to seek Brother Three, for Mapa was still in Pashan, now besieged people, said, by this same group. Brother Three thought carefully. To go himself and to ask to see them the moment they arrived in the village might be throw suspicion on himself, for it was still being whispered that these men were communists. In any case, the affair was political. Finally, Brother Three decided to ask one of the RSBC students who had studied Chinese in the church school and teacher Jeremiah, who had picked up Chinese while living in Pashan for some months at one time, and sent them down to Hana's house, where the prisoners were quartered, to see if an opportunity might not be given them to speak. They went on Saturday morning early before the weekend assignments, for rainy season Bible school was in session, you remember. And before noon, they were back, their faces shining with joy. 
Oh, Mama, they cried. The prisoners were delighted. We explained the way of salvation to them and read some verses from the Bible. They understood our Chinese and four accepted the Lord. The two older men laughed, but four are young. Three of them are about 16 years of age, and the four said that they were pleased to death, and they thanked us, bending their knees and knocking their heads on the ground to us. Praise the Lord, said Mama. After a while I will go and see them myself, added Brother Three, and teach them further if it is allowed, which promise he kept. The younger boy knows Mapa. He asked if Mapa is in the village now. He says Mapa stayed at his uncle's inn often and preached to him, but did not pay any heed to him then. He is sorry now. Was there any talk of execution, asked Mama? No, they aren't even tied up. Hannah cooked breakfast for them this morning, but at noon there was a sound of shots. Mary and Lois ran quickly along the upper trail and saw that the six men had been lined up in the middle of the dell. The laird ordered his soldiers to shoot a certain three, while the other three, shattered in nerves and weeping, were led back to Hannah's house. One of the three dead was that youngest boy. It was horrible. Everyone in the village felt upset. And I expect he will make us bury them, said Lu Sing fiercely, which he did. Abigail's mother and two men, villagers, were ordered to dig a deep hole in the field nearby. One of the diggers was bribed to cut out the tongues of the dead so that they might not be able to tell God who had killed them. A man, clever enough to capture his captors, was yet so blinded by superstition as to think that he could fool God of the universe as to who had slain these poor, misguided children. Why did he kill the young ones? moaned Mama. He says that when they first arrived at Yaman, they swaggered in front of him, brandished their revolvers at him. He decided then, in his heart, to get even, replied Lucine grimly. Then, that is why God let them bring them over. Mama mused, I shall rejoice and not be so upset. It was that they might hear the word of life before they were hurried into eternity. Man would not give them a second chance, but God did. Oh, how grateful we ought to be that we did not delay in attempting to teach them the way of salvation, and how good to be God's man in God's place. Mama was still unnerved and heartsick over the pitiful affair, but this thought was of some comfort to her. Leasing and Timothy were both under orders now from the lair to take messages across the river to Cowhump's village. He needed two men to go, and it was the weekend Leasing offered thinking to minister to the gospel to the Christians there on the Lord's Day before returning. They were commissioned to bring back a report of what the Laird's spies across the river had discovered concerning the band of armed men just over the eastern mountaintops. Lucine came back grinning. I'm glad we're not rich, he chuckled. There was Sasi Yopa family in awful trouble. Everyone in Cow's Hump has gone into hiding because they fear an attack. One man in each family sneaks back in the daytime to see if everything is all right. Otherwise, otherwise the village is deserted. They are living in caves and small booths in the woods or anywhere. But the rich Sasi Yopa, possessing bushels and bushels of grain, where could he hide it? No one would ever carry it all to a cave. And if there was no attack, back again. And his poor cams, again, that merry chuckle. About ten of them were dangling around his neck when he stood in the midst of his many belongings and shouted orders. Cowder commanded him, and his family scurried here and there, grabbing this fist and finding it too heavy to carry and then dropping it, while he shouted again and mopped his brow. By this time, Mary and the whole family were in laughter. It is true what the Bible says. Now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming upon you. Did anyone come to service? asked Mary. Yes, they came back when they heard I arrived, 
But it is true, there are armed men at Beha. There are about 100 there. Spies go and come all the time. Grandpa has brought two machine guns from Tsing Chung, quietly put in Olu Singpa. His youngest brother has gone to get him and is expected here tomorrow. Two villagers have been ordered to help carry them. About ten days later at dusk, the town crier ascended to the middle of the village, crying, A man from each house must go to Baju D and guard all night. Fifty men had been seen advancing on us. One man from each house go. A muttered storm of remorse was his answer. That day, every villager had been laboring in the cornfields, hoeing for some thirteen hours, only stopping long enough to eat lunch. They had just returned home when this order came, and it was raining, the steady, regular pat-pat of a whole night of rain in the rainy season. But Grandpa's orders may not be questioned, and after a leisurely meal, the poor, tired fellows were seen going down the trail, crossbowed over their shoulders, long knives hanging from their belts, no protection from the wet but a straw hat. At breakfast time, Mary saw Timothy walk into their shanty and throw himself wearily on the bed. All for nothing, he said shortly. It was just a bunch of traders from Tuchang. Now that all the rope bridges are cut across the Salween, the only place anyone can cross is our village. They are a ragged, pitiful bunch, those traders. They will be here shortly. All their profit and trade has been spent in the food for these days of delay in getting home, and some have had to sell their clothes already. And after they get across our rope bridge, they will still have over a week's journey to walk and eat. And then began a long line of refugees coming to Olives, among whom were our tribe of Tibetans. The rope bridge had been guarded night and day now, and the Lesu must do that also. Each home must send one man for four days and nights of watching. Lucing Pa was able to do this so Timothy could be spared for the farm work. The armed men across the eastern mountains were reported to be getting ready to attack. So Laird Duan took his young captain and went personally into the mountains to survey a barricade. The Lacey on the eastern bank had to watch all the trails into the canyon from the Biha night and day. So those of Olives knew that they were not the only ones who were suffering for lack of time on their fields. Lucing Ma had a new grievance. The Laird had decided to fortify the western bank of the Rope Bridge of Olives, and he ordered trenches dug around it. The plot of land was the Lucing Ma's cotton field, but it was dug up without even consulting her, and with no compensation either. All their planted cotton, the family's new clothes for the next year, gone at one sweep and for nothing, for no attack was ever made. Then one day a long line of people were discerned coming down the eastern bank from the north, about 37. There being no binoculars and olives, no one knew just who they were, but an attack on the rope bridge was suspected. The communists had already entered the canyon to the north, and went over to their side the local schoolmaster, who happened to be a Christian of the Northern Church, a young man named Thomas, whom Mama designated Red Thomas to distinguish him from Homé's husband. Red Thomas had sent messages that the Reds were planning to come down and liberate. Was that long single file of silent people the advance guard of the Communist Army? Once more, the weary farmers were called to leave their beds and go down to guard at the riverbank, and once more it proved for naught. Morning light revealed that the 37 were Lesu salt carriers, many of them women, who were trying to get across the Salween and carry salt from the salt mines in the Mekong Valley to Tuching, where the price was high. The Laird happened to be returning and met this group and refused to let them cross. He had also planned a salt trade with Tuching, and wishing to keep the price up, he told them at the riverbank that they might not cross.
All their poor little funds were sunk into the salt on their backs. They begged to be allowed to sell to the villagers of olives, many of whom now had no salt at all, but the laird refused. Villagers of olives could buy from him at his price in a day or so when their horses carrying salt arrived. The poor Lesu, they just descended 2,000 feet of unusual steep mountain. Now they must retrace it with their heavy loads, and many of them were women. To force women to carry over 100 pounds of salt up a climb so steep that one's knees came near one's chin and 2,000 feet high, it was iniquitous. The only alternative was to sell to the laird at almost cost price and go home empty with no cloth for the children's winter clothes as they hoped to obtain. Many sold to the laird rather than to injure their bodies for life with such a climb and such loads. As the laird forced the villagers of Olives to drag the salt across the rope bridge and carry it to his house without wages. Later, when his own horse loads of salt arrived, Olive villagers had to toil unremittedly for two days carrying his salt from the river bank to his house. Fifteen hundred feet climb. Every house had to be represented, and they must continue to carry it until all the salt was up. Many of the girls had to carry several times in the day, and the only reward the privilege of buying some from him at the usual price. There was no other salt to be had. During those days of high-pressure living, Mary's trouble from her nose got worse, and hemorrhages occurred not only every day, but several times a day. None of Mama's efforts or Samuel Jews was of any avail. When at length she got very weak, for two weeks on end she had lost much blood every day. Mama, in growing anxiety, suggested that they have an anointing service over her. While the group in evening chapel prayed, the deacon, Mama, and Brother Three anointed her. Ma Pa was now back. The bleeding stopped, except for once the next day, and then none at all. How everyone rejoiced. Even the heathen had been in great concern, for this little stone of fire, so long taken for granted in the community, was missed to a degree that surprised them. Leasing was amazed at their earnest inquiry, and at this was a chance to testify to what the Lord alone could do. But strength had gone, and it would be a long time before Mary could do normal work. No one spoke of it, but it was Lu Sing now who herded the cows, and it was impossible for him to make his pastoral visits. In August, another sick one drew the focus of attention from Mary. The white missionary at Magu, Sister Four, had taken seriously ill. A runner came in with letters from her husband, oldest brother, telling of her dangerous complications and sufferings, which only hospitalization could relieve. At length, she begged to be sent down to Mama and perhaps later get to the hospital in Chinaland. Oldest brother could not accompany her, for they had three small children and their rainy season Bible school was in session. So the runner had come saying that Sister Four had started out alone with a lesu and would Brother Three come up the canyon and escort her. He left early the next morning. There followed a few days of concerned waiting before another runner arrived with the news of an accident in a lesu hut, which had increased her suffering and she had run out of powdered milk. Would someone please bring some? The letter came at dusk, and rain was falling, but two RSBC students offered to go all night in spite of the very serious danger of falling rocks, if they would have a lantern to see the way. Two lanterns were provided, and a brave boy started out, whilst the one stayed at home and prayed. Every now and again, the ominous sound of rocks tearing out of the softened soil above them, crashing down the mountainside over their path, was heard. Not knowing where the rocks would hit, they stood and prayed. But God saw them through, and the precious missionary's life was saved. 
Two days later, she was carried out on a stretcher into Olives. Although confined to bed the whole time, she was in Olives, for the appendix burst after she arrived. Sister Four's life among them was a blessing that they would often talk about. She was so interested in them. By the time Mary was able to walk, and as she came shyly in to see the white woman, invalid, they had sweet fellowship together. Sister Four, for all her suffering, was very observant. Mary is a nice girl, she commented to Mama. She ought to get medical care. If she is well enough to walk now, why not let her go with me to Pashan City to the Holy Light Clinic there? When oldest brother and the children arrive in October to take me out, I will take Mary with me. This kind suggestion gave Mary a new lease of life. Mama had studied all the medical books in the station and came to the conclusion that Mary had a, a polypus in her nose. Mama had never heard of a polypus before, but Sister Forehead. I knew a man who had one, she said. It's not very serious and it can be removed quite easily. Yes, Mary must go out with me. I will have two lacy girls with me to care for the children, so Mary will have companions. Mama asked Mary if she would ride in a mountain chair like Sister Four, but Mary would not hear of it. No lacy would ride such, except that they were unconscious or at least too weak to stand. Nobody knew that Mary had anything more than a polypus, and even if they had, she would not have accepted a chair. That would be a hunting glory. In other words, placing herself on par with a laird's wife. The lacy despised someone who seeks to elevate himself above his station of life and can be very stubborn about it. Well, we're going to end right there, and we'll find out what happens to Miriam next time. I love you. I'm praying for you, and we'll see you later. Bye-bye for now.